Hello, and welcome to New Reality, the show that empowers tomorrow's future today. I'm Heather Khan, and today we're going to be discussing the ins and outs of New Reality and meet the team behind the scenes. To give you all a quick overview, New Reality is an organization that provides the upcoming generation with a platform to grow mentally, physically, and spiritually through our various initiatives. Hello, listeners. We are back, and we've missed you a lot, guys. As always, welcome to another episode of New Reality, the platform that empowers tomorrow's future today. My name is Ruben, and I'm here with, I'm really excited to be here, in fact, with someone that I've known for quite some time, Mohammed Sheikh. And, um, and Mohammed is, I'll let Mohammed do the introduction, but I've known Mohammed for quite some time, and, uh, and today we'll be discussing several topics, you know, and uh, We've been talking about, you know, life, you know, through the Islamic and non-Islamic lens, uh, current trends with youth. Mohammed works a lot with the youth in the in the coaching space. And we'll talk about the NLP, you know. There's NLP, there's a lot of sort of different modalities when it comes to, you know, the subconscious, how, how you can do some reprogramming. So we'll, we'll get into that and it's going to be a very uh, exciting uh, episode. So why don't we start, Mohammed, by telling us a little bit about yourself and, and how you got into this field of, uh, of expertise. For sure, absolutely. So, assalamu alaikum and uh, first of all, you know, thanks for, uh, you know, having me here. Uh, yeah, we're going to be getting into a lot of cool and interesting topics. You know, one of this is, as you said, is we're going to be getting into NLP, which is something that I've been practicing and have really lived as a part of my life for uh, the better part of just over 15 years. We're going to be getting into hypnosis. Uh, you know, that's been a part of my life for a decade now. And then also a bit about heart math. Uh, and I know you've taken, you know, one of my heart math programs yourself. Uh, and that's been, you know, it's been six years since I've kind of got involved into into this. But besides, you know, before all of this, uh, I guess my story in a way really begins with, you know, myself being a student who did really well in school, uh, would have, you know, I'd be an A plus student, you know, my final mark in computer programming, for example, in, in grade 12 was 100. I legit got a perfect mark, right? And my maths were always 90s. And, you know, I had a 90 average in high school. So I had a pick of any any university I really wanted. And I wanted to do computer programming. That's what I thought my entire path was going to be. I'd be doing computer programming. I've been coding since I was nine years old, right? And making my own video games. But <laughs> as it happens, I suddenly had a lot of challenges. There's some stuff going on at home and there's some emotional stuff that was kind of going on with me as well. Um, there was some thoughts that I had about what school really is and what it's about. And all of that, it just really um, started creating this anxiety around writing tests and exams, which is something that I've never really had to face uh, with before. And, you know, this is the short version, but after three years of trying to go to school and just passing my courses, I was so emotionally done that I ended up dropping out completely. You know, I had like $30,000 in OSAP or student loan debts, right? But I just couldn't continue. Uh, and so my entire life plan that I had sort of envisioned was obviously completely out the window, <laughs> right? So I became an individual that well, uh, suddenly wasn't so sure or confident about himself. I, I honestly, there was a time in my early 20s where I believed that I, you know, wouldn't have any much of a real future. 
But alhamdulillah, what happened for me is I ended up getting in the path of personal development. And I think that was so good for me. And I can say this with a lot of um, experience because I have in the last 10 years also worked in the traditional mental health space. Had I gone to a therapist, they probably would have diagnosed me with an anxiety disorder. They may have even diagnosed me with depression. And knowing myself, so this is not true for everyone, but knowing myself, it probably would have given me an identity. And I would have started thinking that my problem was anxiety or depression and not everything else. But alhamdulillah, that didn't happen. What I ended up doing is I getting I started getting to personal development, which is really how I got into NLP uh, and other leadership programs such as Toastmasters, from that hypnosis, so on and so forth. And this is kind of like how I got my start. And for the last 10 years, I've actually been self-employed doing my own thing. I did, I did spend six years in corporate life, you know, becoming a corporate ninja, but I realized that that, that didn't really bring me a lot of happiness. I made a lot of money. <laughs> I got a lot of success on the love, but uh, it didn't necessarily align with how I wanted to live uh, each day. Mm-hmm. So I ended up, you know, quitting that about a decade ago, uh, started up my own technology business, but then I've been coaching and working with people for the last eight years, since 2013. So we're almost at 10 years now. And it's all about helping people with, either behaviors that they, they they believe they can't control, but we absolutely can, and how to change that at a subconscious level. Emotions that are perhaps, you know, haunting them and they need to let go and move past that. Or belief statements, things they believe about themselves or what they mostly can't do and being able to break through that. So I work a lot with youth. I work a lot with adults. You know, my oldest client was someone in the 70s. My youngest client was someone who was, I think, seven years old, right? I have folks of all walks of life from executives to athletes to, um, you know, students, right? All wanting different things. I I usually like to say my job is to help people uh, get whatever it is that they want in life. So mm-hmm. I usually position myself like that. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mohammed, for, for, for a great intro. And and you said something that I wanted to just maybe, maybe we could unpack a little bit because I see that, um, you know, people right now, I see that with, especially with the young adult that uh, who are our listeners where, you know, they get into something, they get into a field, they go to university and then they're nearly there to finish and they start saying, you know, that's not really what I want to do. And I've met, you know, lately I've met quite a few at the center and and uh, and even my son, like he took a year off before he went to university. Yeah. You know, and then he, you know, he went to Yale, did psychology. And then in his fourth year, he was saying, you know what, man, I'm not sure this is really what I want to do. It's, um, but um, yeah, maybe you can tell me a little bit in terms of like, you know, if you've got people out there listening to us and, and they feel they are, you know, in, in, in sort of this area now where they're nearly done, what, what would you tell them? Like, at least finish what they are doing and then maybe look into something else? What, what, would, you, uh, what would you suggest or recommend? Well, you know, I guess it depends on where they are and what phase they are. I mean, this is someone that is in high school and hasn't necessarily, you know, selected their programs. You know, that's going to be very different than a student who's three years in into a four-year program and just has one more year to go. You know, for the latter, it is just finish it and get the degree, right? And, and that's because, 
you know, industry has changed so much now that no one actually gone are the days, even for me, like, you know, and, and I, I technically would have graduated in 2004. So even for me, gone are the days where people actually stay in the same career, right? Uh, let alone same job, but most people switch careers, right? Um, so, you know, like my father, he stayed at the same job in the same career his entire life. That's how it used to be done, right? Same thing with my, my older siblings, but, you know, I'm, I'm technically a millennial because I was born in 82, right? I'm, I'm one of the first ones, <laughs> but it, it's very, very different. So why is that important? It's important because whatever degree you end up getting, the real knowledge in education is going to happen in the job once you actually start working. And a lot of the times it's about just getting your foot in the door. And this leads to a whole other conversation because today's education, you know, the problem is today's education really isn't education. It is an actual education. It's really more compliance, right? Like that's, you know, I know sometimes a lot of parents have issues especially when they want me to work with their kids to go to school. And I have to really work with the parents and be like, well, let's first really define what education should be, right? School is important. Absolutely. Education is definitely important, right? But I think we have to recognize that uh, we have to do our own supplementation. So if you're in high school, you know, reach out to me. I will gladly give you a list of books for you to read so you can actually, you know, supplement everything that you are learning so that you become aware of yourself. And this is to answer the question, which I know you're probably going to ask uh, next, you know, why do kids find themselves in these positions where they're dropping out of programs? I would say seven out of 10 times, it's probably the parent who wants them to go, or maybe half the times is the parent who wants them to go in a certain path, right? And the kid just goes along with it because they don't know any better, Right. Or the other half, the parents are more like, hey, do whatever you want. But we still have the case where the child doesn't necessarily know no, any better, exactly. doesn't really know what they're about, <laughs> right? So they just ask their friends or they just, you know, and they think that, you know, and, and they think it's all about making money. But this is a lot of conversations I have with the youth is reminding them. Actually, I have this conversation with a lot of adults. They look at school as the thing you do to get a job, right? But that's not what education is really about. Education is really about how do we live in this world and have success. And success is not money, yeah. right? Success is how to be a successful human being, mm-hmm. right? And, um, and if we limit school and education to just something we do to get a job, then we're already really missing out on what life can absolutely you know, bring us, right? So... There's opportunities to really kind of know what it is that we want. Uh, and then once we have that, to begin pursuing that as, as a path. Uh, and to just finish my point, you know, money, as I say to all the, all the youth uh, and adults sometimes too, money is never supposed to be the end goal. Mm-hmm. Right. Money is always supposed to be the means. <laughs> it's, you know, the, it's the necessary thing that we all need. Uh, in order to actually, you know, get to our end goal. And of course, we'll be getting deeper into what that end goal is. That end goal is, that's right, yeah. So so tell us a little bit about um, NLP, uh, Mohamed. You know, what is NLP? And, you know, tell tell us a little bit about the difference between, you know, hypnosis. I know sometimes when you say hypnosis, 
you know, especially in, in, in Islam, people think, you know, like, you know, is this something you should do, you should not do? You know, I even ask him, you know, some imam about hypnosis, you know, and yeah, so, so why don't you tell, tell us a little bit about NLP to start? So simply put, NLP is something that came out of the 70s. And, you know, its background is actually rooted in psychology and psychotherapy. It was, you know, two students uh, that were studying psychology to become psychologists and an associate professor of linguistics who kind of teamed up. But what they really created was not necessarily a modality of healing or therapy even. That's not what NLP actually is in its, in its spirit. What they actually created was a set of tools to model or, you know, to copy if someone can do something, how do I do that as well? To model successful behavior, right? That's what NLP actually is, is how do I, if someone is doing something brilliant, how do I also do that brilliant thing? Mm-hmm. Its roots were because they were studying psychology and because they were surrounded by therapists and doctors, they, are, they started off by modeling therapists, right? And they created all of these tools that helped people get over a lot of, you know, what we will call today mental health issues such as depression, anxiety, phobias. You know, you can, you can help someone with a phobia in half an hour. I, I mean, that's actually how I got started. It, it was someone who was having panic attacks uh, with a sudden onset of claustrophobia. And I, I did an NLP process with her that took about 20 minutes and the panic attacks completely stopped. Wow. <laughs> right? <laughs> so, can, you, can you give me an, an example, Mohammed? Let's say, uh, you know, like my yeah. wife, like she has a phobia with, with cats and dogs. So I think something probably happened to her when she was young. Yeah. How would you, you know, like walk, walk through and, and the process with her? Let's say she has a phobia or even sometimes even if she has to go to take um, the escalator, you know, like she would not get in, you know, alone. She's, she's, she has a phobia. Yeah. So before I answer that question, I do want to make sure that we're clear in terms of the definition of NLP because, you know, if it's a set of tools to model successful behavior, mm-hmm. right? We can also take, you know, if someone is depressed, for example, we can, you know, elicit or kind of extract someone that's very happy and lives each day with vitality and joy and optimism, and they're looking forward to what each day brings them. We can sort of extract the how do you do that and then teach that to the person with depression and suddenly mm. the depression kind of goes Got away. It. Got right? it. So you're looking at somebody who's successful, he's doing it, and then you're trying to model, as you say you know, how they do that. And then you, 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 you get to teach someone to sort of model and, and then have the same, follow the same sort of, I guess, behavior, you know, to, yeah, that, that, that's exactly the it. Right. And then, you know, I mean, I, I use that in my sales career, my corporate career, you know, as I said, I was, a I was in a corporate Canada for about six years mm-hmm. and there were people around me making, you know, more than six figures. So I kind of used NLP to learn how they do what they do, and then, be, you know, within a span of a year, started having the same results, right? So, you know, it's uh, applicability. It's everywhere. So if someone can do something, how do you learn how to do that, right? Now, when the case of phobias, this is an interesting because what we're actually talking about is uh, really we're talking about the nervous system, right? And a lot of what Richard Bandler, John Grinder, and Frank Puslick and the rest of the people you know, uh, back in the 70s we're doing, we're actually being able to prove how that works and why that works from a neuroscience perspective really in the last couple of decades, right? Well, they were doing this in the 70s and the 80s, so they were very much ahead of their time. 
in psychology, there, you know, if someone has some sort of a phobia, they have this thing, uh, you know, this therapy called basically desensitization therapy, right? Or exposure therapies, you know, really, it means the same thing. And what that is, is someone has a phobia, as you said, of cats. What they would do is they would expose first the person to a picture of the cat until they're okay with that. Then maybe next week, they would expose the, uh, the person to an actual cat, but the cat is like in a cage, right? And, you know, until the person's okay with that. Then they would let the cat out, but it's a big room and the cat's not coming to the close to the person, right? Until they'd be okay with that. And then the next week, you know, they would make it so that, you know, the cat is like, you know, cuddling or coming up close until they're okay with that, right? So this is something that exists today and we know it works because the nervous system you know, our brain is always rewriting and making new mm-hmm. connections. So you're just creating a new pathway, I guess, in the brain. Absolutely, right? I mean, this is what neuroplasticity is all about, is that we're always rewiring our brain. But the thing is, you don't have to do that over a span of months. You can actually do that in half an hour uh, using, uh, in a way, hypnosis and just asking them to close their eyes. And there's this elegance of you know creating these layers of disassociation. What I mean by that is you would have the person imagine they're in a movie theater watching a screen on which there's a cat, mm-hmm. right? So I mean, for me to teach the phobia cure is like a <laughs> you know it's like a whole course in and of itself. But in a way, what we really are leveraging is 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 concepts that we understand today uh, from neuroscience. Um, it's just that they were doing it in the seventies. Do you have any success stories of somebody who had anxiety who maybe they were taking, you know, um, anti-anxiety medication and then they went through NLP or even hypnosis and eventually were able to come off? Yeah, a lot of lot of clients that I work with, you know, some of them are on meds and a lot of them have been able to lower, if not get completely get over. So I'm not a doctor or a medical professional, so it's not, you know, on me to ever get in, in the way of, okay, how much medicine you should take should you take it or anything like that, right? But, you know, the truth is emotions is ultimately something that we do, not something that we have, right? And what we need to understand about the way the brain works is it's almost like, you know, uh, I think you told me once you enjoy cooking. Yes. All right. So, you know, when you go into the kitchen, I would imagine, I've never been to your house, <laughs> right? But I would imagine in your kitchen, you know, behind all the cupboards, you have the ingredients, you have the spices, you have the, you know, the vegetables and the meat and the fridge, right? So you have all of these things in the pantries and all of that. And the process of making dinner is you going and taking all of these elements and creating a dish. Mm-hmm. But now you understand that even if you were to follow the exact same recipe every single time, the dish always tastes a little bit different each time, doesn't it? Yeah. Right? Because, you know, maybe the spices are a little bit more spicy this time. Maybe it's a different brand of spice. Maybe it's a little bit old, right? It's, you know, the air has sort of weakened it, right? So all of these things sort of happen. So when we, when I say we don't have emotions, we do emotions, we are actually creating real time, whatever it is that we're feeling. Our brain goes through a process of collecting bits and information and emotions and thoughts and meaning and all of this sort of stuff and 
creating a state each and every single time, right? And so when we understand that that's actually what's happening, we can then take conscious control of that automatic process and start creating a recipe that's more to our liking. Mm-hmm. Wow. Then that's NLP in a nutshell. <laughs> creating the recipes we want. The recipe you want. Wow. And you've been, do- you've been doing that for how long now, Mohammed? Just over 15 years. I, I got involved. My first exposure was in 2005. And, um, you know, and then I formally got trained, uh, which was a very intensive program. I probably spent about a thousand hours as a student. Wow. In the classroom before volunteering for the place that I was, you know, trained by for two years every week and then training for them uh, actually for another two years before I kind of started doing my own thing. Right. So from 2009 to 2015, uh, I was very much an apprentice. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you also did uh, hypnotherapy, correct? You've uh, you certified the uh, hypnosis. Yeah. And um, so I did mine. I think I think we spoke about it. You know, with uh, with Irina, Irina Beno. I did. Um, yeah. I did the level one, and then I started doing the advance with her. And um, and I thought, wow, like you know, until I got into it, I didn't realize uh, how powerful hypnosis can be. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, you know, the question hypnosis absolutely it's super powerful. But, you know, the question around, you know, is it halal or is it not halal or mm-hmm. this? It's, it's all coming from a place, no fault of anyone. If, if you were to point fingers, we should point fingers and blame uh, movies and, and TV shows and, and the media because they make hypnosis seem like it's some sort of mystical, magical, force-like, you know, like, you know, in Star Wars, the Jedi waves his hands. Right. And, you know, he tells, makes the person do whatever they want, that it's just some sort of mystical thing. But in, in reality, uh, hypnosis is, is yet another function of the brain. It can easily be explained by uh, neuroscience. And it's, I mean, psychologists actually uh, refer to that state that we call trance. They refer to it as a state of disassociation, mm-hmm. where we're kind of disassociated from ourselves. You know, because you've been in hypnosis, yeah. you very much feel, don't you, like there's part of you that's watching yourself, and then there's part of you that's actually in the trance, yeah. right? So you kind of take on these two roles, the observer and the person that's in trance, right? So there's a sort of thing of disassociation, which we kind of do all the time anyways. You know, like sometimes we're so just lost in our thought that, you know, and I'm sure this has happened to you that maybe someone in your family or wife perhaps is is saying, Ruben, Ruben. And, you know, she must have said it four or five times where you turn around and yeah. be like, yeah, I'm right here. And she's like, I've been calling your name for the life. She's like, yeah, I, no, really, you just said my name only once. Right? Yeah. <laughs> you know what? Uh, yesterday I was listening to uh, Bruce Lipton. I'm sure you've, uh, you've heard of Bruce. Yeah. Like he, was, he was talking about, you know, the conscious, you know, the prefrontal and then, you know, the subconscious. And most of us, we don't realize it was in like 95% of the time we are in the subconscious. Yeah. Most of what we do is automatic. Yeah. And then he was talking about, you know, like the, you know, the first seven years of your life, the most important years and uh, how, whether it is me or you, like, you know, some, uh, you know, some of us didn't have great, you know, early childhood and how it's like me, even uh, the other day, like I was having, I was talking to my wife and then I said to her, you know what, I, I am like my, like my father and, and, and it's so true. 
You know, most of us like because who 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 do we look at? You know, who's our role model? It's our parents. Yeah. You know, uh, women, their mother, me, my father, and and then he was talking about you know how do you rewrite? How do you? And then he was talking about the different modalities NLP, and then he talked about psyche. Psyche? Have you heard of psyche? No, I haven't. Yeah, he was talking about psyche and then how to reprogram the mind. You know, if people have challenges to maybe listen to things at night, just to whilst you get into that, you know, that, uh, you know, the different wave state. Sure. But it's just like, I think, recognizing, you know, like how you've been influenced by your early childhood is, for me, I think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm spending a lot of time like looking at myself saying, oh, wow, this is like a child behavior sometimes. Well, yeah, absolutely, right? Because ultimately, you know, one of the questions I've always, and I think I've shared this with you, one of the questions I've always been fascinated by is why is it that two, the same life event can happen to two different people? And for one person, it's, you know, the thing that puts them in a downward spiral, you know, and they get into maybe drugs or gangs or violence or something. But the same life event, and, you know, a life event can be, you know, perhaps they lose a parent or there's an accident, or there's an illness, or there's money issues, or there's, you know, something traumatic that happens. But the same life event can happen to another person. And for this other person becomes a catalyst of, you know, positive transformation, and they become mm-hmm. like a motivational speaker or, or a tech yep. talk, as I like to kid, right? So it's really interesting. A lot of that, yes, absolutely. Uh, our first seven years, they are very formative, right? But the good news is, because of what we understand about the way the brain works, it doesn't mean that whatever is wired is permanent, right? We can absolutely, I mean, one of Richard Bandler, one of the co-creators of NLP, he has this famous line that it's never too late to have a happy childhood, wow, right? That's so powerful. I work, yeah, I work with 40-year-old, 50-year-old people. And that doesn't mean that they go and they start buying the toys that they never had as a child. No, what I mean is we can do inner work so that their brain can relive their childhood, but in a way that was filled with love and joy and happiness so that that part of them that's still, that part of the personality that's still sort of stuck as, you know, a five-year-old that just, you know, didn't get a chance to properly grow up, they can actually get that fulfillment and then grow up to whatever age that they really are, right? Mm-hmm. Um, well, most people actually do, uh, you know, as adults, because now they have money, they actually start doing childish things, right? That's not <laughs> what it's meant by it's never too late to have a ch- happy childhood, right? And, yeah. that, and that's obviously comes with this whole other, uh, you know, host of issues. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And, um, you know, I would like us to sort of unpack a little bit. I know, you know, we want to talk about the purpose of life. Yeah. Worship. Is it just worship? Is it just praying? Especially, you know, even this morning I had, you know, someone came at home and then we were having some conversation. And I was telling her like lately, you know, and I look around, especially the young adult, you know, I look at my children, my nephews, my friends. I think more and more they are spiritual. They all believe that there is a God. They all believe that there's something out there. But I just... It just seems to be, uh, you know, I see more and more young people really starting to question and even step back a little bit from being a Muslim, the ritual, you know, the praying, the act of worship, 
you know, every day. And, um, and I'm sure you see that with maybe some of your, some of the people that you coach. Can you, can you tell me what has been your observation? I think, I think COVID maybe accelerated that a little bit. And then, and then we'll talk a little bit about what the young Muslim adult today who is struggling, like many of us, even, even adult, to be honest, are even struggling. So, so let's start this. What, what have you seen like in the last, in the last couple of years? And, 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 and yeah, then we'll get into what can they maybe implement or use in it in order to be able to, I guess, come back a little bit more on, on, on that path. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So th- there's actually uh, uh, a few things that are happening at the same time. And that's why it's becoming more and more a problem because it's not just one thing anymore. It's actually multiple um, paths that are kind of coming together. And so it is, you know, and I see it's, it's absolutely tragic, right? The first path, let's go back to how you were saying that, you know, uh, the first seven years are very uh, impactful, right? And you will find you will find a number of things, right? Um, the way a child learns how to live in this world or how to interact with this world really is as, you know, the environment that they grow up in, right? So for example, as a little boy, perhaps, you know, I'm four or five years old and I'm with my father. This is a made up story, but let's pretend that I'm with my father and he's returning something at the store and he doesn't have his receipt, right? And you know, the customer service guy is like, I'm sorry, sir, you need a receipt. And my father gets very aggressive and angry, right? And because he gets very aggressive and angry, right, the customer service rep is like, hey, you know what? Okay, sir, you know what? No reason to cause a scene. We'll make an exception this time. Please bring your receipt. So I basically learned. See, I don't know what's right or wrong. I mean, you know, I have my fitra, of course, right? But that I basically learned that, oh, this is how I get what I want. And so... When I'm now at, at school or at the playground and, you know, a child is playing with the ball that I want to play with, right? Well, then what am I going to do? I'm going to get angry and aggressive because that's what my father did to get his way. I think that's appropriate behavior, right? It doesn't mean I'm a bad boy. I just basically did exactly what, in a way, what I was taught. And you can assume now that my father did exactly what he was taught. The thing, though, is... What this is speaking about is it's speaking about the sort of meaning and the associations, right? And you'll find that one, the messaging or the approach that a lot of us, the way we get, the medium that we get our Islam is really through a path of guilt or shame or just anger, you know, like punishment. <laughs> you know, you don't pray, <laughs> right? Or if you don't pray, you're going to hell, right? And, you know, this is really, really interesting because I was listening to a scholar and they said that, and, and forgive me, I don't remember which one it was, but they said that a child's relationship with Allah in, is going to be correlated to their relationship with their parents, right? So if the parent is strict and angry with their child, they're going to, when they were young, they're going to believe that that's how Allah is as well. It's very interesting, right? And, you know, what does the Prophet ﷺ teach us about, you know, how to raise a kid? You know, the first seven years, love your child, 
right? Give your child love, give your child compassion. And we have adults and parents who mean well, but they're just so caught up in really the fear of this dunya that there's not enough, forgetting the barakah and the promise of Allah. That's a different conversation. But they then are raising their child very, very differently. They're, they're projecting the expectations that, you know, it's basically me, a 40-year-old individual, projecting the projections I have of myself of how I should behave mm-hmm. onto my onto my seven-year-old boy. Exactly. <laughs> right? As if, you know, but they're only seven, right? So the first seven years are supposed to be of love and compassion. And, you know, I was at a khutbah two weeks ago. And, you know, I'm looking around and the khatib is basically talking about how bad your sins are and how much you need to repent. Mm-hmm. Right? And yes, when people make a mistake, of course, we need to repent. We need to make tawbah. But the majority of that congregation were youth. There were students, there were kids, all ages, right? And of course, their parents were there as well. But it's basically sending these messages that you haven't even done anything yet. Yeah. <laughs> and you should be making toba. It's, it's literally, you know how like we have uh, innocent until mm-hmm. proven guilty? Yeah. And like then there's guilty <laughs> until proven innocent? You know? Like that's what's actually happening here. Yeah. Right. And so and then you have, you know, some some individuals just because of, again, perhaps what they believe is proper or they believe is the etiquette. They have this very strong, strict, angry type sort of approach. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the reality is, is that is a complete 180 from how, of course, our prophet, you know, was. Mm-hmm. And how the Sahaba were. Yeah. Right? Like, even like stories of Omar, radiyatala anhu, who was, you know, the strong feeders. People used to be afraid of him. You know, when he came walking down a path, Shaitan went a different path, mm-hmm. right? Because he was afraid, <laughs> right? But there's moments of him just having so much compassion. Yeah. Right? Like, like there's a very different sort of approach. So I think this is the first thing that we have to remember that the associations that people are making with the religion is is not necessarily a good association from an emotional mm-hmm. aspect right and this is really 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 important and it's no different than you know when uh when parents come to me and they're like my kid doesn't talk to me about anything and i say to them well that's because whenever your kid tried talking to you maybe 5 years ago you know, he came up to you and said, hey, mom, there's some boys in my school that are smoking cigarettes. Yeah. Right. And your response was, stuff for Allah, you can't hang out with them at all. Right. Like you, you know, you reacted in such a way that the child learns, OK, don't say things like this to my mom yeah. because she's going to freak out. So his intention is actually really good. He doesn't want his mom to freak out. Yeah. Right. And, you know, but if we kept our composure and we recognize that, hey, he said some boys are smoking, not him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. And even if he did, yeah. I can remain calm. Of course. And I can just say, okay, well, let's talk about this. Right. And help him grow, you know, 
you know, age appropriately, right? Mm-hmm. So this is this is the first point, and I think it's a very very important point, uh, and this is the point that everyone ignores. That's why I mentioned it first. The second point is what most people blame, but this is the the first point, and this is the one that everyone ignores that we really do need to sort of in a way ask ourselves, what is the emotional meaning relationship? What, what are we creating, right? And, and this is neuroscience, but by the way. You know, going back to the, uh, the whole experiment of, uh, depending on the audience, you know, depending if they've learned this in school, they usually teach it in high school. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Pavlov. Pavlov, yeah, the dog. The and, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, ring the bell, and then the dog would salivate, you know, ring the bell, bring food, dog would see mm-hmm. the food. The association. Associate the ring and the bell with food, right? So what ends up happening is we associate the dean mm-hmm. with an angry dog. Yeah, that's so true. That's so powerful what you just said. Right? Yeah. And, and that's, that's totally not what it is. We, we associate the dean uh, with basically this life doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And we just need to make it to the next life. To the next life, yeah. Because every khutbah like, when was the last time, really, Ruben, you went to a khutbah and the imam talked about how to live a life of joy? You know, not, not about the akhira. And it's important, of course, our akhira, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But, you know, so, but the thing is, we then believe that Islam, or to be Muslim, is, is basically the afterlife. Yeah. You yeah. know? And, but that's not how the Sahaba lived. Yeah. They very much lived in this life. They enjoyed this life. Even Allah says in the Quran, we're sending you down for a period of time for you to enjoy. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's the verse in the Quran, right? And yes, there's other things that, of course, you're going to do. But, you know, it's not this horrible life that sometimes we get painted. Yeah, you've uh, well said. You know the way that you, you know, uh, on the first on the first part the association. I think that is so true. You know, when you said it, I was thinking. I said, "Oh my God, yeah, that is so true." The association. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The second one is there's a lot of programming out there. Yeah, oh, man. Right. Yeah. There's a lot of programming out there, and there is also no wonder. You know, so on one hand we have all these negative associations, but on the second hand. There is a lot of programming that is just confusing, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I haven't seen the movie yet, but uh, a friend of mine, he made an interesting comment. There's a new movie, Avengers movie, right? Uh, Thor, Love and Thunder. Okay. And he's saying that basically the message of that movie is God can't help you, but love conquers all. Mm-hmm. And so... That's kind of shirkish, right? That's kind of like, you know, no, of course, the only one that can actually help us is Allah. And Allah is the most merciful and the most compassionate. And so it really is. But there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of uh, in the media, in our school systems now, mm-hmm. right? Um, there, there really is. And, and it's, it's because, I mean, you know, to secularize uh, society has been part of the agenda for a very, very long time. And for us to pretend that that's not a thing and that's not a real agenda is to be very ignorant because it's pretty clear and it's pretty, pretty evident, right? Um, but, you know, what is the result? The result is most Muslims are actually very secular Muslims. 
And what I mean by that is they don't actually have a heart that lives with Islam and Allah in their hearts. You know, they are individuals, even the practicing ones are individuals who just go through the motions and their understanding of Islam is basically almost like a to-do list, right? Or as if it's a scorecard. You know, like I remember I went to a conference and they gave us this uh, this sort of map, you know, and we had to go around all of the tables and get a stamp. And if we did that, we could put the map into, you know, like a ballot and they would draw and, you know, win a prize. You know, it happens a lot. I'm sure you've been to a conference yes. like that, <laughs> all right? And so this is what's like, you know, people are like, you know, like, this is a conversation that, um, and you know, my father, mm-hmm. you know, a woman came up to him at the bookstore and basically said, um, you know, I want to buy these books and give them for dawah purposes, mm-hmm. right? And, uh, you know, he's like, yeah, for sure, cost price. And then it's like, can you do better than cost? Because, you know, as for dawah, I want to earn, earn more ajr, mm-hmm. right? And it's this understanding that, you know, Allah is not going to reward you on how many books you bought. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. And the Muslim is already selling it at cost price. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, you know, you want them to take a loss, but like, this is the thing we kind of start looking at our Islam and our deeds as if it's some sort of a scorecard. Right. And, and it's, and it's not really right. Like there's no hadith or the Quran or any story or anything as if the Sahaba were like tallying up, you know, like they just lived. They just lived, exactly. They just lived yeah. and they lived lives that just had so many good deeds in them. Right. But that wasn't their that that wasn't their intention. They were just living their life. Right? But they lived a they lived a good life. A good life, yeah. If you know you've got a young adult, you know, who's struggling, listening to us, you know, struggling with their dean today, what would you suggest, you know, for them, you know, where to you know, as you said, there's confusion. There is a lot of confusion right now. People are lost. You know, and um, there's confusion. I mean, there's a, a whole maybe even podcast around even weed. People think because it's legal, it means it's halal. You know, there's that. There's this confusion as well. That's something. Maybe that's going to be something that we can unpack another time. But you know, where would someone who is listening to us really struggling? You know, depressed, and you know, where, you know, sometimes you know. They'll go to, you know, they'll go to see an imam, they're going to say, start praying and start doing this. But but I think there's more to it, you know, right now. You know, what what would you suggest? Yeah, so, you know, I would suggest that the very first thing to do is, is and we, and we learned this from um, the Quran, uh, in Surah Al-Hashr, the way it ends is, you know, Allah is telling uh, his names, you know, not all of his names, but a good number of names. It's a beautiful, beautiful surah, right? We need to look at the two verses before Allah starts, you know, listing off those names. And Allah says, remember me. And if you don't, I will cause you to forget who you are, right? And, you know, when you understand this, this is not that you forget your name or anything. It, it makes you forget your actual purpose, right? Like that's what Allah is talking about. You're like, you will forget your actual purpose. And then as a mercy, because Allah is the most compassionate and the most merciful, he then right after he says, no, get to know me, he then's like, this is who I am. Here are my names, right? And so I would say, 
unlearn everything that perhaps, <laughs> you know, you've been taught, right? And really get to know Allah, you know, and start with his names. You know what? It's, it's so interesting you saying that because I've been reading a lot about Sufism lately and I'm reading a book. The title is called Knowing Heart. And he said exactly what you just said. He said the first step is you need to deprogram yourself. And that's Sufism. You need to deprogram yourself. He said to deprogram, to reprogram so that you become unconditioned, which is really interesting. And, and, and I think you're right. It's, um, it's um, you know, in the, uh, and then in, in the Sufism, they keep, you know, they, they say that many times, you know, um, only in the remembrance of Allah lies tranquility. You know, that's, you know, it's, uh, which is so true because I think you're right. It's, um, Right now, I see a lot of young people, they've, they've lost meaning. And, and that's purpose. exactly what it is, because they're confused from this way, and they don't have the peace and the contentment they should have because of the other point that I mentioned, right? And, and, and the truth is, like, Allah wants us to live this life and actually experience it. And this becomes, in many ways, a form of worship. You know, like, alhamdulillah, I've been blessed with such a beautiful family. We're married 16 years. I have a 12-year-old son now, right? And every, you know, in, in a hug from them, in a kiss with them, you know, going bowling together, vacationing with them, all of these things, you know, it is a mercy, right? It is a blessing. And what does it cause me to do? It causes me to be grateful, to, to have sugar. And then therefore, me spending my time with them becomes ibadah, right? Like it becomes this worship, but it really is about how we live this life. And that's why like all the hadith, you know, the majority of the hadith, you know, it's, it's how people live their lives day to day, right? And it's about practicing honesty, you know, you know, like that in and of itself, is uh, living a life with actual integrity, you know, where you say what you say, but you also walk the walk instead of just talk the talk, you know, that in and of itself becomes uh, actually Ibadah. Yeah. Do you know, Mohammed? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's uh, it's nearly the end of the show, my friend. You know, it's been... <laughs> yeah, we can keep on going, right? <laughs> <We can> t- <laughs> exactly. But you know what? Um I've really enjoyed, you know, the, I'm sure we're going to have you back, you know, on the, on the show. And, um, and for those who love today's discussion, can you tell us, Mohammed, where to find you and where can they follow you and where can they reach out? Yeah. My website is coachthemind.ca. You can go there. I'm always happy to have a free conversation, no charge or anything like that. Uh, there's a big blue button that says, you know, book a call you're more than welcome to kind of reach out and have a conversation with me. Another really good way is just to kind of find me on social media. I am a bit old school in the fact that I use Facebook and I'm not on Instagram. I mean, I have an Instagram account, but I'm not active on it. I'm definitely not on TikTok. Yeah, I was going to say, what do you mean? (laughs) But uh, I like to live life, actually live life and not so much on the social media, but I'm active on Facebook in in the sense that I do write a lot of beneficial stuff. Uh, at least once a week on on Facebook. So there's there's a way to kind of interact with me there as well. Uh, but yeah, like I said, I have an Insta account. It's MohammedShake.official. And with Facebook, I think if you just search, I don't know, Facebook or Mohammed Sheikh, 
space NLP or space hypnosis, you might be able to find me that way. But if you go to my website, coachthemind.ca, I, I, I do have a social link uh, somewhere on that page. All right. Perfect. Thank you again, uh, Mohamed. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Be you, become awesome, and stay rising. <laughs>